Welcome to Fertile Minds Radio. Here you'll find wisdom for your fertility journey and beyond, chosen specifically to help you trust your body and elevate your spirit so you can enjoy the process. Join us and see what a fertile mind feels like. Now your host, Hilary Talbot Rowland. This podcast is a proud member of Parents on Demand, a network of high-quality shows for families just like yours. Download our free network app on Apple and Android and listen to your favorite episodes on the go. You are listening to episode 55, Fertility Challenges and Unexpected Spiritual Awakenings. I'm your host, Hilary Talbot Rowland. And if you're a regular listener to the podcast, you know that we try and cover a variety of information from scientifically backed innovations to more traditional medical techniques, always including the physical, the emotional, and your spiritual body. And you know that it's my mission to make the planet a healthier place two generations at a time by educating you, the listener, on how to live and conceive consciously. And we're definitely going to learn some awesome life tools in today's episode. So often we get stuck on the physical when it comes to our fertility, but there's so much more that can impact our success when we start to tune our attention to the emotional and spiritual bodies. Today's episode is definitely not the stuff that our OBs have time to talk to us about. And that's exactly why this podcast exists, to talk to you about the somewhat kooky in a non-kooky way so you can feel well physically, emotionally, and spiritually. My guest today is Sharna Longley. She is a Reiki master certified not only in Reiki, but shamanic healing and five element theory, as well as a certified herbalist, which you know I love. She's also a certified aromatherapist and a meditation facilitator. She also just happens to be a published author on Elephant Journal and Mind Body Green, and she has her own book, The New Highly Acclaimed Unexpected Spiritual Awakenings, and you can find that wherever books happen to be sold. In addition to all of this, she happens to be my energy worker and friend. So welcome to the show, Sharna. Thank you so much, Hillary. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on and especially to talk about all of these somewhat kooky things, I guess, from some perspective that you and I find normal (laughs) and I find super helpful. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of demystify this uh, for our listeners of how they can work with more than just their physical bodies. I wanted to have you on because you're just such an absolute wealth of information when it comes to these types of things and the effects that the spiritual and ethereal bodies have on our physical bodies. And I know for me, even though I live in this world being an acupuncturist, you always have this amazing way of just explaining the mystical and really concrete ways that's easy for my mind to wrap around. And I thought that so many of our listeners could benefit from hearing you speak today. Oh, thank you so much. That is so kind. I can't wait to talk more with y'all. So in today's episode, we're going to talk about you know your book, but we're also going to talk about how it pertains to fertility, unexpected spiritual awakenings, and why they can be common during a life crisis, which so often a fertility challenge can be. We're going to talk about how to spot them when it's happening and some tips on how to ease the loneliness and discomfort that sometimes come with it. We're also going to touch on some energetic housekeeping for your ethereal body. If you don't know what that is, we're going to define it. And this is all going to help the listener feel clear and grounded when making important life decisions. But before we dive in, I wanted you to kind of just tell our listeners a little bit about you other than your bio and specifically 
how you came to this line of work so they can get to know you a little bit better like I do, because I know that you came from a very linear background in computers, right? <laughs> yeah, so I my background's in marketing and executive management, and then I have some a uh, bit of like a tech background because I worked a lot in the nonprofit sector. And so working in the nonprofit sector meant that I was what we used to call the accidental techie. So I was like in a nonprofit because we never had like enough money for a tech person. It would always be that, okay, who has like, who's the most technologically savvy in the organization. And so there's a term for it, which is accidental techie. And that was me. So I know when you and I have been talking about all things business and the ins and outs of tech, um, I was mentioning that piece. So yeah, I have a pretty varied background in history. Like I think so many of us that eventually come into this work has been sort of a twisty and windy road. You know, as a child, I think a lot of us realize that we're empaths now later on, you know, in life, although these days kids are being raised with an idea of what an empath is, I think a lot earlier on, but I was one of those highly super sensitive kiddos growing up in a family of six siblings, a big Irish Catholic family. And so, you know, my sensitivity was on high alert for a lot of my childhood, but I didn't really know what to do with it. So uh, I was kind of a quiet, shy, introverted child. And so I went that, you know, ultra path of like success. I was like, I'm going to get straight A's and go to college and be in a PhD program and get married. I actually got married when I was 18, trying to like do it all, you know, like follow that perfect checklist that takes you into happiness. And at 22, I was married with the degrees and the, you know, two cars and the condo and the dog. And I was absolutely miserable. And so that propelled off kind of one of my first awakenings where I uh, really delved back into learning more about spirituality, got involved in yoga and raw foods and sound healing and uh, shamanism and did a lot of sacred sightseeing in my early 20s. And then did that for many years and felt like, oh gosh, you know what? can't really make a living doing this right now. And some relationship stuff happened for me during that time period as well. And I sort of jumped back into quote unquote, the real world, the non kooky world, right? And uh, right. have been uh, so I did that for about 13 years, I was in executive management and nonprofits, all the while doing this work personally in the background. And then through some of my own challenges that I had actually with mental health issues in terms of depression and anxiety and panic attacks was when I delved much more deeply into kind of the second phase of this journey, which I've been with ever since. And that happened in my late 20s. So it's been gosh, well, over a decade now <laughs> since that happened. Um, so I've been doing some form of this work for the, actually the last two decades, both personally and professionally. And in my own journey towards self-healing is where I really wrapped in all these certifications and uh, modalities that I now practice and share with others. And so it's that beautiful way that we kind of take our own really challenging journey and it catalyzes us into a place where we can then help others. So all of those modalities uh, and challenges that I went through now have really unique me teed me up, I think, to be able to help and work individually with clients through uh, energy work and energy healing, and then also teaching classes and, and kind of having that extended reach really across the world, because I'm blessed to be able to do a lot of distance work, which means that I, I have qu quite a large reach in terms of I think 33 states in the US and eight countries across the world where I'm really grateful to work with clients all over on all of these different issues, fertility and fertility challenges actually being one that I get to dive into. And then uh, a lot of just looking at how crisis can bring us into a deeper sense of awakening and transformation. I love that. I mean, 
And that's why I love working with you is because you came to this so honestly and organically in your own life. And you share some of that kind of recovering type A or personality that <laughs> I can relate to. And I know so many of our listeners relate to And you know, and it's, it's one thing to understand mental health issues, but it's quite another when you've walked through them yourself to really have true compassion for somebody, not just empathy, but that step forward of compassion and to be able to understand with a different kind of ear what they're going through. And I can attest to your distance sessions. I believe it or not, I am a skeptic when it comes to things. And while I do my, you know, my own personal practice twice a day, it is very helpful to sometimes have somebody else come in and kind of root you out or point out something that you're kind of aware of, but you can't really seem to get to yourself. So that's how I love to utilize Sharna's services in my life. So the distancing actually works. Trust me. (laughs) I know. You know, it's so funny as I was the biggest skeptic when I started doing distance work too. I was like, this is never going to work. I'm, I think you and I are really similar in a lot of ways. And that's one of them where I tend to be in that claircognizant type where I'm like, okay, I know things, but I really like for things to be proved. And I like to see the science behind it and all the rest of it. So my first distance session I ever did, I was like, this is never going to work. And it blew my mind, but it's actually made me even more of a believer than in-person work. And interesting, my my distance practice took off, I think, due to life circumstances, more so than my in-person practice when I started. And so it's just super neat to be able to watch how that uh, happens. And when people experience a distance work for the first time, the fact that they usually their minds are like entirely blown. And on top of it, I want to commend you for, you know, being one of those practitioners that really deeply walks your talk as well in the sense that, you know, you have teams of people that work on with you because, you know, those of us who practice this work, we have to take really good care of ourselves. And so our ongoing commitment to our personal path is huge. And I know, a lot, unfortunately, a lot of people out there in this field that, you know, self-care is a checklist, but it's not actually like a real commitment necessarily, right? To like the self. And I just see that in you so deeply. And it's one of the things I really appreciate about you. So anyway, commendment back at you, girl. Thanks. It definitely came as a work in progress. If I'm being totally honest, I at first did all of my practices, including my meditation for my patients. It was so that I could be better at my job. It was not for me. And then the light bulb went off of like, holy shit, what would happen if you actually, right? (laughs) You were kind of like a preemptive strike with taking care of yourself. And my work got so much more powerful. And I mean, I always loved my work, but it was, there was less burnout. I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Self-care is always important, but if you are a nurturer or a healthcare practitioner in any of the bodies, <laughs> it's super, super important to to keep doing what you love for sure. So just to, to recap a little bit, can you explain Reiki? <laughs> <laughs> Ten years ago, all of these terms, nobody would have known. And I would say that, you know, maybe this is like our listeners know what that means. But if there's somebody listening that is like, what the heck is Reiki? Because sometimes if you're in the medical community, Mm -hmm. it's hands-on healing or light healing, right? There's different names to make it sound more appropriate to whatever venue you're practicing it in. So if you could just give like your definition of Reiki. Absolutely. And I make the joke a lot of the times that Reiki is 
the car that I drive in the sense that there are so many different makes and models of energy work, right? So energy work is the larger heading under which Reiki falls. Reiki is a Japanese tradition and technique in its origins. And so a lot of us here in the United States are practicing Reiki as one form of energy healing or energy work. You know, there's pranic healing, uh, quantum healing, healing touch. Um, there's a whole you know wide range of ways that folks can practice energy work. So that's, I think, the first point to make. The second on a logistic level is what energy work is doing at its most basic, regardless of which car you drive or which uh, modality you're practicing, is we're channeling life force energy, which is the building blocks of life, right? Everything is made up of energy, life force energy, chi, again, lots of names and words for it through our physical bodies, primarily out through our hands, uh, to move blockages in the mental, emotional, physical, energetic, and even at the soul level. So one of the really neat things about energy work is we can access the multidimensionality of the human experience. Um, we can work across time and space, depending on what your beliefs are about that, from past lives to working on the etheric plane, to working across geography, to really promote healing in the current present moment, but that healing can go backwards and forwards. So really energy work can be utilized for any quote unquote ailment or issue that you may have. And we don't even have to get too deeply into where it's coming from or what it's about. Although that certainly makes it helpful for those of us with highly cerebral minds when we can actually chart a path forward through what that healing process can look like. But we can work really deeply on moving and clearing out blockages with the hands and with energy without having to work too much in terms of, of talking through it. Sometimes, I don't know what you'll think of this analogy, Hillary, but sometimes I make the very loose analogy that Reiki or energy work is kind of like acupuncture without the needles um, in the sense that we are using life force energy, right, to find blockages and move and clear those out through all of these different systems of the body. And that sometimes makes it feel a little bit more accessible for people that have no idea what energy work is. Oh, I agree with that completely. I mean, to give you an example, yesterday, my business partner and I were talking, she's a Qigong master of over a decade, and she called out sick. And she was laughing because everybody that was supposed to be on her schedule, you know, she just she did her Qigong practice. And as she does so often, and I do in my meditation, just sending them healing vibes, right? You know, mm -hmm. what was going on. And by the end of the day, like half of them have texted her and been like, you know, not knowing what was happening. <laughs> <laughs> I feel so much better. I guess I didn't need that appointment today anyways, right? And we were like giggling, like, you know, sometimes it does work better at a distance mm -hmm. because there is no such thing as time. But, you know, in, in present moment, awareness is one thing. But when you're in the room with somebody, there's so much to get caught up on. Yes. Right? Yes. yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. <laughs> so I think that that's a great analogy. And, you know, again, like if Reiki is the car you know, acupuncture is the model of car mm -hmm. that you're using. Mm -hmm. You're using a different device to tractor beam that in. Absolutely. Yeah. And I find the distance work even, I end up doing more talking in the distance work than I do in the in-person work, but it balances itself out because distance work actually is more concentrated. So a little bit goes a long way because we aren't, many is a word encumbered by the physical experience, right? But when you're there one-on-one -on -one with that person, like you said, there's so much more to get caught up in. And also the energy does tend to move more slowly 
slowly when we're working physical body to physical body because you know matter is energy that's slowed down long enough to take physical form. So necessarily we're working in a denser energy system when we're touching the physical body than when you know two bodies are not necessarily together in the same room. It's almost like a super highway. And then that's the other joke I make is like, you know, when I do distance work, I'm basically riding that energy super highway to the other person's energy body and things move much more quickly when we do distance work. And I find people, you know, everybody's different in terms of which modality they prefer, but it's neat to be able to get to practice both. Yeah, I've had the pleasure of having both of yours, both deeply powerful. The physical one, you definitely saved my ass that day for sure. Oh gosh. I was like, welcome to New Mexico, Hillary. New Mexico did not like me if you followed on Instagram on my travels. Oh, she loved you. She just wanted to embrace you really hard and help you like clear a whole bunch of stuff out. She wanted to into the vortex and like clear all of my old karmic stuff, which I'm grateful for now on the other side, but vomiting at dinner was not my oh, finest. Oh, poor thing. I was just looking at you. I was like, oh, poor Hillary. And you're like, I will be right back. Oh man, but that's how, it, I mean, that's how it does it. The energy of land can be really potent and you know, you showing up the way that you do, you strike me as somebody that doesn't do anything by halves, right? So that would mean New Mexico would be like, here we go, she's ready for it. And she just like, dunked your head way way under the ground. Oh, God, love you. Yes, I showed up wide open for sure. Mm -hmm. That's another story though, for another day. I know our listeners want to know, we jump into the meat of what we've promised them and and get into your book and the topic of unexpected spiritual awakening. So for those, you know, listeners that we've tracked or beamed in to this episode and they have bravely pushed play going, I think that might be happening to me, unexpected spiritual awakening, but I don't know how to define it. Can you explain what that is and then what the difference is between a spontaneous awakening and then one that is rather purposeful? Because I feel like there's a really tried and true difference. Absolutely. So when we talk about the spiritual awakening process and kind of this larger context, it is that personal combined with spiritual development process that creates extreme and massive transformation inside of the self. And so it's literally an awakening. The other way we talk about it often is a rebirth, right? So it is the shift from one way of being and showing up into the world to a complete and total transformation metamorphosis coming out the other side being quite a different version of the self not only in this human incarnation but it also has really deep tethers to the soul experience as well so that's what makes this a little different from like oh yeah I did some personal growth work and now you know I changed some habits in my life and I'm showing up differently Uh, what makes it a spiritual awakening is that spiritual component of it. So it also reaches up into the soul level. And it's that opportunity to connect more deeply to our spirituality to whatever God got a source universal life force energy is for you, and then how that is expressing itself in this human experience. So when we talk about awakening, that's what we're talking about in the larger sense of the word. 
When you talk about a purposeful awakening experience, this is what's been more studied, not to say that the spontaneous type hasn't been studied at all, but we have more traditional religious literature around the mystic's path. And this pretty much every single religious tradition has a mystic's path for this. When I was researching the book, the two that were at least most primarily accessible for me was the more Christian slash Catholic mystic's path. And then of course, Sufism and the, the Kundalini awakening awakening experience, where in these traditions, the the individual, the seeker is embarking on this path purposefully, right? There's an awareness that, okay, I'm delving myself into the deep mysteries of the universe, of God, of what that means for me with this purposeful sense of coming out the other side different and changed. One of the biggest things that makes this different from the unexpected awakening is both the purposefulness of it and the context or the structure around it. So typically, a person picks a tradition to do this kind of awakening inside of. And so that necessarily means that there are supports inside of that system, right? There's teachers, there's priests or priestesses or nuns or monks or, you know, spiritual folks to help guide you through. There's often, even though this is often done very um, much in isolation or personally, there's also a sense of community and there's a sense of trajectory. So you're embarking on this knowing that this cataclysmic experience may happen, but you got some support around it. You have a context. There's sort of an awareness of, of what you're going through. This second type, which is what my book and a lot of my work is primarily about, I I've kind of turned the coined the term unexpected awakening. Sometimes I talk about it like an, a spontaneous awakening. And that is where the lay person is basically, you know, going through their life and a crisis moment hits and it has the possibility of them propelling the person into the same type of spiritual awakening process. One of the things that makes it more challenging is that often the person going through it doesn't even realize that that's what they're going through until they're about midway in it. So for most folks, that unexpected awakening looks like a full-blown red alert crisis in the life. And it's like, oh my gosh, what is happening to me? And it's through actually that experience of difficulty and often it's pain that propels somebody forward to then trying to seek out, okay, what the heck do I do now? Because my life is literally falling apart and I've got to find some help or support. Usually they go through you know, more traditional methods of Western medicine or mental health you know, kinds of supports, depending on how the crisis is showing up. Eventually, they find people, I think, Hillary, like you and I, who are in, in more alternative um, modalities, where there's some also spiritual component to it. And then that light bulb goes off. And it's like, Oh, I'm going through an awakening, I have an opportunity to transform this crisis into part of my spiritual path and come out the other side of it. Yeah, it's, it's intense when it happens. I mean, I've had to Mm-hmm. The pleasure and honor, shall I say, of going through both types. <laughs> but like you said, the, the the unexpected one, I think it's less studied because you don't understand that it's happening until you're at least midway through. You just think that you're like failing at your life, right? Like everything you're touching is <laughs> breaking or not going as it should and you can't do anything right. And if you don't have that initial awareness from some type of spiritual practice and faith, it's really hard to understand ahead of time what's going on. Now, I think when they start to come at me, I'm like, oh, I know you. I know what this is. Like, let's hunker down. Let's get 
some support in lines so that we can go through this faster than trying to fight it the whole way, right? And and that's when things I do feel like are really a crisis or like what you say, or, you know, a, a red <laughs> a red moment in life of like, oh, <laughs> please push the brakes, right? Right, absolutely. It's like everything's falling apart and where do I go? What, how do I, you know, how do I navigate through this? And, and really what it, it is propelling us to do is to stop, right? That's one of the big messages that the awakening that this crisis type of awakening has is it's our life going from that famous whisper to a scream. And the reason why we're seeing it happen more so now than ever before, which is I think also why it's getting a lot more attention now than it ever has been is that less people are aligning themselves to religious traditions. And so, you know, in the past, you know, religion was such a big part of the way that that many people grew up across cultures and across the world. Uh, And we live now in the society where there's almost, in some ways, a swinging in the opposite direction, where there's kind of almost an anti-religious sense in, in some folks and, and, and some of the upcoming you know past and current generations and then there's also less of a connection to that sense of okay well, you know why am I here and then more of us than ever before are living these fast-paced ultra young energy lives right where we are just propelling ourselves forward at mock speed and so we aren't also taking the time to listen to the whisper and so many of us are finding our way to awakenings through crisis because that's the only time we'll stop <laughs> you were talking earlier about that type a piece right i mean i think we are just mass producing the type a personality because that is the way that we have learned that success is supposed to look at least in in recent you know decades and centuries and And so now this is a coming back to a return to, okay, hold on, wait a second, like something in my life isn't right, I need to stop. And sometimes it's only through crisis that many of us will stop and take a look at what's happening around us. And that's exactly why these crisis moments happen is to propel us into an opportunity for transformation. It's just often we don't quite see it until, you know, we've stopped long enough to be able to take a look. Yes. It's such a skill to be able to attune yourself to the whisper and actually follow through mm-hmm. on it instead of getting hit by the two by four. Mm-hmm. My second spontaneous awakening, because I, I kind of like, I, I like half asked the first one if I'm being completely honest. <laughs> it was too traumatic and I didn't have the tools to like mm-hmm. follow it through. And that was where I first learned meditation. But the second one, I broke my leg or mm-hmm. she broke it for me, I should mm-hmm. say to actually make me sick because I was running too many marathons back to back because I hated my life. I was like Mm -hmm. quite literally running myself in my career, which was not this career and had nothing to do but sit in meditation and think. And (laughs) that was deeply humbling. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully this episode is going to help you be like not so stubborn about these things. So if you're going Mach 10 and nothing's going right, or you find that people are looking at you maybe going, you're not the same person. Or you're not handling this different. What I don't know. What do you think are some other signs that you're going through in a spontaneous or unexpected spiritual awakening? Yeah, I mean, I think that the biggest place where we tend to see it is what we've already been talking about in terms of crisis, right? So those crisis moments, when I was writing the book, as as you know, you know, the second section of the book is all personal narrative. So they're from clients and students of mine who went through this kind of crisis to transformation experiences. And we had them go through a timeline exercise, which actually also is included in the book to kind of go back through and do exactly what you just did, kind of talk about these different moments where awakening 
things were happening in their lives. And people were like, okay, well, how do I know that? And so we were looking at like, okay, well, look for those crisis moments, but then also look for the times when you were really propelled to commit to a different way of being. So the way that I kind of define an unexpected awakening is twofold. One, it's usually through transitional moments in life. They don't always have to be crises. Those are just the more obvious ones. But typically, you know, transformation finds its way through transition because it's an obvious time, right? Something's changing in your life in a transition. So it's a great opportunity for an awakening to come through. So that can look like health issues, both mental and physical, um, or emotional and physical, breakups, relationship issues, divorce, career shifts or changes, oftentimes moving or geographic kinds of things, uh, community issues, the big ones around life, death, suicide, um, near-death experiences tend to be as well. So all these places where transition can happen, that's kind of the, um, we talked about vehicle earlier, right? That's kind of like the vehicle for the transformation. The second piece, though, is just as key, which is a commitment to change. And so I know we're going to talk about the stages in a moment. And, and this is one of the things I talk about a lot in the book is that we have these different stages we work through. And you can always go back. And one beautiful thing about living a life is we've got lots of free will, right? So just because a crisis or an opportunity for transformation is showing up in your life doesn't necessarily make it an awakening all on its own. And I think this is something that I see even more so now that this whole idea of quote unquote being woke is showing up, right? Where everybody's like, oh, I'm going through an awakening, I'm going through an awakening. And not to take away from people who feel that they are going through an awakening, but I think what we miss a lot of the time in getting kind of into the hype of the potential glory of going through an awakening is that it's a commitment. We show up and we say, I'm not just patching up this problem. I'm actually committing to doing something differently. And what you just spoke about with, you know, your first awakening experience, that happens to most of us a few different times where we have these kind of mini or like pseudo awakenings, but really we're recycling between stage one and stage two, where we're in a crisis, we find a different way of doing it we patch up the issue and then we kind of return back to life the way that it was. And I'm not saying that that's what you did, but that's one of the ways that we kind of see what I would call a mini or pseudo awakening is that the crisis comes up, we do some shifting, but then we pretty much still kind of go right back to how we used to be. What makes the full-blown unexpected awakening is the two, the transition moment or the crisis moment coupled with this deep sense of commitment to your own spirituality, whatever that means for you, right? And your commitment to growth. It's basically that part of you that says, you know what? I don't want my old life anymore. Um, and usually that happens in that third, which is the the midway stage where we, we're sitting in kind of the really difficult part of the awakening. It's the hardest part. I kind of joke we're sort of halfway out the birth canal at that point. So it's really kind of hard to go back, but you're not out yet. And you just like, oh my God, that's the moment where you sit there and you go, you know what? I'm not just going to patch this up anymore. I want a whole different life. That's what actually makes the awakening itself. The crisis or the transition moment is the vehicle for it, I suppose. I'm into cars today. I have no idea why. Maybe it's this Mercury retrograde. <laughs> no, that you are spot on. That's exactly what happened. I was patching holes, but you know, looking back, of course, now you have more insight. And I was like, I was 19 and it was after, you know, a crisis of physical, you know, sexual assault. I don't think I 
like knew enough about myself quite yet to bet on myself that I could weather that stage three. And I think I had like some ego issues of like, I can patch this hole and somehow I don't have to change my life. (laughs) I'm better than this. Like I can beat this. Mm -hmm. Yep. And again, when I did my timeline and, you know, because I went through all the exercises in the book as everybody else did when we were putting it together, it was like I could see all those moments where I was like, oh, yeah, I was in stage one, stage two, stage one, stage two, you know, and it wasn't and it took it oftentimes takes a few crises before we're actually like, okay, there's a larger message here. And, And everything we learn from those previous experiences builds on itself. So they're absolutely valuable and important. And I do think age and experience has a lot to do with that one highly chrysalis moment where we're like, okay, this is it. Like I'm no longer truly, truly doing things the same way that I used to do them. And a lot of times it takes some precursor, you know, some (laughs) test runs before we're really willing to kind of make that true, tried and true commitment. Yes. So I think that's important for people to know, especially if they're recovering type A, because we want to like get in there and do it perfect. And that main difference between the purposeful and the spontaneous or unexpected awakening, I have to remind my patients of all the time when I see them going through it, because I do think it comes up a lot in fertility challenges, especially when there's been miscarriage or it's been going on a really long time. You start to question so much about your life, maybe your relationship, maybe the the role that your work plays. And so if they start reaching for these changes and to try and make these commitments, it's really difficult in some ways because it's not their sole purpose, right? Whereas if you had a purposeful awakening and you ran off to an ashram or you went and you know to a church or you know where you lived and you basically used to trade like room and board, right? For this guidance, right? You had somebody there, you prayed or meditated all day or whatever the practice was, whatever religion you were involved in. And maybe you peeled potatoes, but you did that mindfully, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so when you had that dark night of the soul, terrible moment, you had a place to land. Whereas what I see happening in today's society and maybe why it takes a few more times is you have that dark night of the soul you know, on your bathroom floor, crying at your toilet, thinking it's all going to end and why is this happening and how painful is this? But then you literally have to get up the next day, put on your makeup, go to work, smile, pretend like nothing's happened, right? <laughs> Feed the kids if you have them. And like, I think that's a lot that people don't take into consideration of how much energy it takes to have an actual awakening all the way through the five stages in today's life and still do life. For sure. Seriously, because it's, we're, we're parallel processing. And so it is symbolic of the world that we are in right now where we're trying to do too many things at the same time. So we're even trying to awaken at the same time that we you know, are trying to live these quote unquote perfect lives. Although I think that's part of what you're talking about here is that it's the movement away from that. But most of us have so much on our plates and it is really challenging to go through an experience like this while you still have all the demands of your regular life. I mean, I I joke all the time with my clients that it's so easy to be spiritual when you're in an ashram, when you're living up in the mountains, when you can pull yourself away from society. This is actually way more difficult to do to come here in these, you know, very highly fast paced lives with a lot of judgment about what we should be doing all day long and try to live 
a deeply spiritual existence while also still wholly owning the human and the duality in that is challenging. And yet it's, in my opinion, highly advanced, but it does mean that it's going to take more effort, more time, more patience, and more awareness and gentleness with the self, which I think really at the end of the day is the message in all of it. Yeah, I agree completely. So just to go back into these stages, because you did this brilliant structure of defining kind of the stages of awakening, because different religions and traditions have different numbers, if you will. And you kind of likened it almost to grief, you know, that they may very well happen out of order sometimes, which I think is really reassuring because, you know, for people that are goal oriented and listening, they want to do it right. They want to just like do this one time, right? <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> Raise your hand if that's you. That's, that was amazing. amazing. Both What's my the hands. next step? <laughs> right? <laughs> so you run through the stages and then, you know, reassure people that sometimes they don't happen in the right order. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Oftentimes they don't happen necessarily in an order. This is a very non-linear process. A lot of the work that I do actually is in balance um, with masculine and feminine or yang and yin energies, right? And uh, this is a yin process. This is a feminine process. Most of us are living a lot in yang or masculine energies through life. So that's that linear, give me the stages, write me the book. And then I feel like all throughout the book, I was continually saying, and but <laughs> none of this is actually a, a system or a structure. And so we have to kind of strike that balance. So there are five stages as I've sort of identified them. And I'm sure you know, uh, other folks would talk about these differently, but this is the best way that I had of putting them together based on how I was seeing it both happening for myself and my personal life, and then the hundreds of clients that I've worked with over the years. So that first stage one is actually the crisis moment, right? It's the transition. So something's broken in your life and you need to try and get in and fix it. So that's actually how I've defined stage one is that first crisis point, something breaks, you're trying to fix it. One of the things I talk about a lot in the book is the opportunity that we have to always go back to the stage before, right? Um, and so a lot of us will move through a couple stages and then we'll backslide back and then we'll move through a couple stages and then we'll start back at the beginning. Um, and even when we get to stage five, the hilarious part about stage five is that you do actually just go back to the beginning, right? So everything in life is a spiral, is a circle. So this first stage is the crisis moment, the problem. People can get stuck here. And, and, and most of us know at least one person in our life that tends to get stuck as that kind of perpetual victim, right? Or that person that just, no matter how hard they try, can't seem to kind of get out of that stage one. Um, I think that's, the, that's one of the more challenging lives to live in the sense that oftentimes we just get stuck there. Um, with a lot of good professional help, I think people People can move through that, but there is the possibility of getting stuck in that stage one. Thankfully, it doesn't happen all that frequently. Usually, most of us will move to stage two where we're, we're finding new ways, right? We realize the old ways that we did things don't work. So we are in um, that stage two where we are trying to intervene or reorganize our system of the self, right? And so we are then saying, okay, what's the new methodology I need to find? What's What are the books I need to read? How do I need to restructure my life? You know, we find those skills skills, those tools, we change a little bit necessarily. And then oftentimes, many of us will stop at stage two, and, and we'll end, you know, just going right back to our life. And we'll recycle stage one, stage two, quite a bit. Oftentimes, in stage two, I'll also encounter people here as clients, and they may have an awareness, they're going through an awakening. And they're like, ah, oh, everything's so great. I figured it out. I know exactly what I need to do. I found the secret of life. And it's the word 
awakening or it's acupuncture or it's yoga or it's, you know, and they're like in this like super excited phase. And I always love when my clients are in that phase because I'm like, oh, yay, like stay here as long as you can because it's about to get really hard. And usually stage three hits and people are like, oh my God, what did I do? And so this is where I was making that joke about like being halfway out the birth canal, right? Because this is what we call spill point or the liminal stage. We also think about it sometimes as the winter of the awakening process where everything starts to die. This is more typically where I tend to encounter clients because this is really that true dark night of the soul where you know things are falling apart all around you. And the challenging part about stage three is that you already thought you fixed it. You know, you already thought like, wait, I found all the things like how now all of a sudden is my life falling apart after I already thought that I fixed it. And this is actually what, in my opinion, truly makes the awakening processes when we hit that stage three, when we've supposedly fixed the crisis, but we've continued down the path, we've continued to commit to the self. And then suddenly our life starts changing as a result of us, it starts changing because of us, right? And so all of a sudden, we've done all this internal shifting, and everything around us starts to change and fall apart. So even though it may have started with one crisis point or one transition point, for a lot of people, it almost has this domino effect where like three or four different things start breaking in their life. So often, I'll see a person who makes a career shift, you know, they're like, I'm not happy with my job anymore. I changed my job. Woohoo! Look at me. I did it. It's so great. And then all of a sudden, their boyfriend breaks up with them. Um, their, you know, uh, house burns down, they get in a car accident, and they find out they have some kind of difficult autoimmune disorder, right? Or, or something like that happens. And so it's like, wait, holy cow, how did this happen? And that is really that deepest transformational process that happens where chaos energy really gets in there, which is the energy of change. It is also a feminine energy, by the way, and starts to wreak its beautiful havoc in every place in our life. A lot of people will run screaming from the hills from a stage three, and you can absolutely turn around and go back. It's usually just a little harder to patch things up afterwards. Usually when people realize that they're in stage three, they realize they're in awakening. They're like, no, I want to get through this. I need a different life. You know, they can see that it's all happening for a reason. And then things start to sift and settle and they come out to the other side of stage four, where they're truly in that rebirth joy stage that makes stage two look like, you know, a teeny tiny miniature version of it. And then, then in stage three, it's like, oh my God, I can breathe again, right? And then life starts to settle. We start to come in that springtime. We start to see things blossom. And then we really fully realize that we are a whole different version of the self and who we were. And this is kind of that gentle, calm water that comes after that, you know, stage three, you know, really difficult time. Uh, and we can sort of ride this out for as long as we want. This, I should stay from like stage even from stage three to stage four can take years uh, to happen. And so I also like to just give that guide because a lot of us think like, oh, right. So that happens in like two months, right? And it's like, no, <laughs> that can take years and years and years. Uh, and what happens in stage five actually is the awareness and recognition, as you've been speaking about, Hillary, that we're actually always in a process of becoming. We're always in a perpetual process of awakening. And so stage four, we could sit here often, very frequently, also for many years, just kind of like, ah, thank God things have stabilized. I just want to kind of like chill out, ride this out. I've got my new version of myself. Like, ah. And then we start to get that little itch that goes, you know what? 
what's next? Like, I think I'm ready for the next like thing on my spiritual path, right? And then we jump into stage five. And that stage five is the awareness that we are constantly living stages one through five all the time. And so I think you talked about in the very beginning, then it no longer feels like a crisis anymore when things come into our life. Then it's like, oh, I hear that whisper rather than waiting for it to become a scream. I'm going to go ahead and address it right now. And actually, as you were talking, I was thinking about our, our Mercury retrograde prep for this podcast where we were both online really early in the morning, right? Like checking everything out, like make, okay, maybe I need to like, do we need to cancel this? Do we need to reschedule it? Like, you know, doing all of our things because we know that when you don't pay attention in that first whisper, you know, things can spiral out of control again. I think the other thing too that you learn in stage five is having a perpetual sense of humor about it, right? There's sort of this like laughability to the whole process because that amusement both keeps us at a higher vibration, but it reminds us that, you know, everything is an opportunity for us to create and produce shift. And it's just a matter of approaching it from that particular place. So when people talk about being woke or they talk about, oh, I've been through an awakening, I feel like those who have really reached stage five almost don't even talk about it that way anymore, just because we're constantly in it. You know, it's just an awareness of like, yep, I'm just rolling through the rolling through the motions and something will show up. And, you know, I'll move through it the best way that I know how to. But I think we sort of de-identify with almost with the not with the process, but with the defining of it, if that makes sense. And that's what really brings us into that last stage, which the funny thing is, is it's not a final stage. It's actually a beginning stage, right? It's a jumping off point to live in it all the time, if that makes sense. Yeah. And that's why if you are listening and you hear us like kind of giggling as we're explaining this, we're not laughing at you. We're laughing because we know like you have to have this sense of humor. You will not get through these stages, right? Stage three is where we become your biggest cheerleaders, right? Because we know that it's, yeah, it could take a couple months, but it could take a couple years. And it's really important to to have somebody that can see that big picture in your support system helping you through this, right? To get to stage five with levity. Because it is funny when you get to the other side, because it seems so serious and dire when you were in it. But then when you get to the other side, you're like, oh, yeah, that was kind of like a joke from the universe. And here I am. Absolutely. And it gives us a really good context. And you've got those little, you know, that little badge of honor that you can, you know, sit there and just be like, yeah, okay, I, I did it. And I and like you were saying before, I think, you know, having the trust in yourself that you actually really can do it. And I think that is what we do as cheerleaders, right? Like we see it in our clients and our patients. And we're like, ah, you know where you're at right now and just hang in there because we know how strong our patients and clients are. And also having been through it, we know that there is a trajectory and that you will get through it. And, and it's the, the other main reason why I wrote the book was really to have stories of these types of crisis moments so that people didn't feel alone because I think that is the hallmark, unfortunately or fortunately, I know it's quite purposeful, of the awakening experiences. You feel like you're the only person in the history of the world that's ever gone through this. Um, and I also say that with laughter because it really does feel like that in the moment until you start to like look around and be like, oh, wow, there are so many other people that have gone through this too. But we do live in a very isolationist society with as 
ironically more connected than ever as we are right now, uh, we feel very alone inside of these experiences because we're not taught to sit in the authenticity and truth of our experience, own it and share it because we live in this highlight real society. So being able to be in that space of cheerleading and also knowing that our clients and patients will get through it and we will get through it (laughs) when we have our moments because we, we still do as well, right? Of course. There's so much depth in what you said, like important things in what you said, especially when it comes to fertility, because I feel like it's such a realm where people isolate themselves because it's so deeply personal and unique, the struggles that come up around it. There's no like one size fits all infertility challenge because there's so many different parts of our life that sometimes needed to be shifted in order to kind of help us through that birth canal as, you know, the archetype of the maiden into this archetype of a mother. And that starts to happen, I think, for many women well before they're actually pregnant and they don't understand what's happening in this transition. And they just feel like somehow they're doing life wrong or, you know, this thing that they're meant, their bodies are meant to do, can't do. And they, they don't have anybody to talk to, or if they do talk to somebody, you know, it's virtual in like a group setting, like a, you know, a Facebook page or something like that. There's like, almost like it's more comfortable to have this barrier of isolation. But when I see somebody show up in my office one-on-one and they have this ability to, you know, say all the things that they want to say that they feel like they can't say to somebody else or, you know, about how screwed up it is, right? (laughs) That it's happening or these different facets or the things that they need to say and voice about their partner maybe or their job that they can't necessarily say in their own world. It's deeply healing. And I think that helps actually propel them through to be able to say those things out loud because it can be so lonely when everything's changing. It can be really uncomfortable. Like you yourself, I feel like don't even necessarily know who you're becoming. Like you have an idea maybe of who you want to become on the other side, but you know, I can look back on certain times and I will describe it as feeling like naked flapping in the wind, (laughs) like so vulnerable, right? (laughs) And it's like almost like everything that you knew or thought to be true has just been stripped out of your conscious reality. And, you know, that can be wildly uncomfortable, especially if your partner is looking at you like, who are you? What is happening to you? I mean, I don't know about you, but do you see, it's not often that I see couples go through a transformation together, kind of like one leading the charge, right? Yeah. And it's interesting because it, you know, I actually do couples work in addition to doing the one-on-one work, but usually the way the couples work happens is that I'm working with one part of the couple, right? And they're going through all of this stuff and they're just like, oh my, you know, and eventually the issue with partnership starts to show up and that's natural. When, as we were talking about before, when we start to shift in, internally and then everything in our life starts to shift around us, the first place almost always that hits are our primary relationships, be that your partner or your best friend or, you know, family member you're really close with. It's those people who are the closest to us that often aggravate us the most and or um, experience the deepest kind of abyss in between where we used to be together. And now all of a sudden we're on two different sides of this like fissure. And so usually I'll work then with them as a couple and often we'll work then separately with the other part of the couple to try 
try and, and work through these issues. And, you know, when we talked about these stages being kind of like, like grief, the transformational process is that way also in the sense that not everybody goes through an awakening in, in the same methodology, the same processing, because the issues that we're dealing with are unique and different. And so in a partnership, it's highly uncommon that two people would be like, oh, hey, yeah, we're both going through this stuff together. Like, you know, let's look at it through this framework of awakening. And how do we do this? I mean, I'm sure probably there are some folks that are doing that now. But for the most part, I think by and large, it tends to be one person goes through an issue or a shift, and it launch it can launch their partner into an awakening for themselves as well. But the way that we handle the awakening process is so highly unique and individualized that even if both partners are aware that they're shifting together, they're highly likely doing it in different ways. And so for your population and your listenership, at least on the the line of fertility challenges and issues, that's a big one because the person trying to get, you know, the person holding or carrying the baby, uh, and then the partner are going to experience the difficulty in conceiving in very different ways. And so to be able to marshal through that process together takes a lot of patience, takes outside help, it takes bringing in other people as a part of the team to come in and not just address the physical issues of what's happening around conception, but then also the emotional, mental, spiritual pieces of it as well, and and how the partnership can get back to dancing together, rather than, you know, kind of the solo dance that I think often happens in an awakening process. Brilliant. So in regards to the you know, our listeners in the fertility population, I've explained it as, you know, a fertility challenge going on and on. It's kind of being like spiritual endurance, right? Especially if the person doesn't really want to recognize this as a way to awaken, if you will. And you and I have chatted about that a lot. And of course, there's like crisis, right? This is seemingly from a personal standpoint, a crisis when you can't have a baby, right? But do you think that there's any other purpose or reason why why that seems to spring up around fertility challenges, this opportunity for a spiritual awakening? Do you have any theories on that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you you hit on the the primary one, which is that anything that feels like a crisis is an opportunity for shift and for change. I do think too, that it tends to find its way into the parts of our life that feel the most mysterious, because the mysteries of life is actually where our spirituality lives, right? It lives in this these questions that we can't quite answer, but we have a sense of. And what is more mysterious than bringing a life onto the planet? You know what I mean? From this really deeply spiritual place, it's like, wow, this soul is coming from somewhere. And again, depending on what your belief system is, but where is it coming from? And why is it like coming into my body or with this partnership? And then this consciousness comes into the world as this whole unique human being that that I've, you know, created inside of myself in some ways, but then is uniquely all its own. And so the mystery to why that happens, when it happens, how it happens, there's so much that we can't explain from a consciousness perspective, from a soul perspective, and from a spiritual perspective. And so the awakening process tends to live in those moments where we can't explain things, because it is necessarily how we transform is through the 
the inexplicable. You know, the energy of transformation and awakening is the energy of chaos, which is the feminine or the yin energy. Um, Masculine or yang energy is the energy that structures things, right? And we need both. But when we're looking at these deeply transformational moments, you know, we look at it even from a scientific perspective. I talk a lot about somatics and the book and the way that we see change happen through sound. Uh, and, And chaos energy is always what is introduced for a system to change. And when we look at fertility issues and issues around conception, we are looking at trying to bring, you know, this feminine system into a place where it's ready for, you know, a being to come in and be brought into life. And so we can address the physical components that are out of balance, which is a big place where we see awakenings happen, right? Is, okay, what's not working in my life that's creating perhaps some of these conception issues inside of my body? What do I need to look at? What do I need to address? And I don't know if this is how you often see it, Hillary, but at least how I see it in my clients that are working with fertility is it's all yang energy at first, right? It's all fixing it. Like, okay, what do I need to address? What do I need to do in my body? What supplements do I need to take? What books do I need to read? What do I need to know about my my calendar and my menstrual cycle? And you know, it's all information, um, which is good and important and necessary. We need it. But once that, you know, kind of all integrates through, if there's still a persisting issue with fertility and conceiving, then there it actually cracks us open into a wider, okay, well, what else am I looking at then rather than just trying to quote unquote fix it. I work a lot with my clients on living in the body rather than like seeing the body as a tool. And I think that's a lot of what happens with my clients when at least I see them around fertility issues is I usually get them right after they've quote unquote fixed the physical problem, right? They're like, they've, they've looked at their body as a tool. They've dealt with it as an instrument and, and they're doing all the things. And sometimes it's even to the point where it's so ultra extra, right? In terms of the things that are being done. So then I come in and we look at things from um, this perspective of like, okay, well, where's your enjoyment in life? Are you happy? You know, are, how's your stress level with all of this that you're dealing with, right? And I'm sure you address a lot of these issues with your patients as well. So then we look at, the what I would call the more yin side of this, from my perspective, that more feminine side, we look at living in concert with the body and then also bringing in that spiritual or soul level component where we don't look at what's wrong anymore, but we look at what's right and we look at the opportunities and we look at joy and we look at creation and we look at mystery and we look at all those like exciting, beautiful things that yes, are hard to do when you want something so badly um, that for some reason just isn't happening. But we talk about surrender and that really is the biggest piece of the awakening process. It's what stage three is meant to bring, which is bring brings us to our knees to the point that client once who was consistently saying uncle, she's like, I call uncle, I'm saying uncle universe, I surrender. Uh, And I often say to my clients and my students that however strong we are, however more type A we are, it usually takes that much more for us to surrender because we're so hell bent on beating it, fixing it, winning the game. And then we realize through this awakening process, like, oh, it's not actually about that, right? It's about surrendering. You know, in the fertility world, obviously, that's there's that old adage of like the moment that you release the attachment to it, right? And you stop trying, people get pregnant, right? And the body just kind of like moves through that. I don't know how true that prevailing wisdom still is, but I know I see it in, in my clients as well. So I talked about a lot of different things there, but that piece around 
the surrender component, I think, is a key one. It is still very true. I think that surrender is like the S word for a lot of my <laughs> my patients. I say it, it's like you can see their eyes roll even if you're not in the same room. Like if one more person tells me to just surrender, yeah, right? I'm sure. Parenting will bring you to your knees regardless. It will at some point, like whether you birth those children or not, trust me. And I feel like if you're if you've gone through it in infertility or fertility challenges rather, you're a little bit more equipped to listen to those whispers and maybe not be on both knees <laughs> when you're parenting, right? So there's, there is like purpose in this, right? This is a grand plan. It's not just torturing you because you deserve it. There is so much there in that reception. Like how do you receive something if you're always trying, yes. right? Yes. You just can't. We do live in a very male dominated world. And just because like we've become introverts that are very good at being extroverts and we become females that play in a male's world. And I'm not saying that any of that's bad. Like God knows it's served me in a lot of ways. But it there is this thing that about reception that like some I don't know if it's subconscious correlation with weakness or it's the fear of the vulnerability that must come with it, or that resistance of like, uh oh everything has to change or some major things have to change in order for me to receive this. And so we fight it and we would much rather check off all that list and make sure it's not one of those things, those easy, young, linear accomplishments that we can do before we delve into this. Like, And that's why you know people come to us as like a last resort a lot of times. A lot of times my patients show up as like the most educated patients in my in my wellness center. And there's five of us. I mean, we see a lot of people, but my fertility patients, man, they have researched everything. They know their research. They know the supplements. They know the IVF procedures. And that's also a good way when things aren't working between a male and a female in terms of fertility. You know, oftentimes the female will notice that something is wrong. And in fact, evidence points to it at three months of not conceiving, she will raise her hand and be like, something's wrong, where it takes a male upwards of nine months to notice like, hey, this isn't working, where oddly, he's more relaxed about it, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, <laughs> so mm -hmm. I think part of it's a coping mechanism to get the male partner, if, if that is your partnership on board, is to go in a very young style of like, oh, here's what we need to do. And then we need to do this. And are you behind this? And can you fulfill these obligations with me? And like, as if they don't want to do the mysterious with you, which you know, sometimes they do. And sometimes that's part of the, the growth pattern, right? They need to learn to be a little bit more in awe and their feminine side. Absolutely. And that is, it's the merger of the two and it's dancing that intricate balance. And, you know, I, I think addressing things from that, you know, whatever is most easy and accessible to us is the first place that we're always going to go to when we encounter an issue, the tried and true. And just because of the world that we live in, at least in our Western culture, that tends to be science and medicine and the very like linear, logical, research-based way of doing things. And then eventually we move into, as you said, this more yin principle where we start to look at the, the wraparound and the mystery of this beautiful opportunity, right? To bring a new life into the world. And, and then as women, we start to, because these are the bodies that we carry that in, look at like, wow, what, what am I doing? Or how am I living in my body? And, and I will often work with my clients with fertility challenge to just ask that, are you living in your body? Because if we want to bring a life into this body, we have to live in it first, right? And so what, what does it feel like to be in your body? What does it feel like to live inside of you? What makes you happy? What makes you joyous? Where do you play? How do you love yourself? These are all actually 
feminine or yin principled elements that most of us have actually lost. And so in this drive to be just like men, um, we've lost a lot of these feminine energy principles. And and I do, at least in the work that I do with energy work, and I'm working a lot with yin and yang and masculine and feminine, I see there's a lot of this trying to rescue what I would call, quote unquote, the true feminine energy, which is not looking just like a man. And I, and I think that's, that is what has gotten us so off track with our bodies. And most women are not in tune with their cycles, aware of what a cycle even is supposed to look like. <laughs> I say supposed to, right, in quotes, because it's different so much for many of us, but but how that, that all happens. And so to, to return to a lot of those things that in tribal cultures are very basic, for many of us, it's like, whoa, it's, there's some big lights that go off inside of that experience. For sure. And it's, we've kind of lost the matriarchs to take us by the hand and guide us. So we are actually planning another episode where we're going to talk about your cycle and the moon cycle. So we are going to do an exercise. Well, I say we, (laughs) Sharna is going to do an exercise for you. Um, And we're going to put it in a separate episode where it's going to follow directly after this, because we want you to be able to access it as many times as possible, because it is going to be something that you're going to want to go back to until you get the hang of it, of doing it on your own. It's one that I've done with her a few times, and it's really helpful if you happen to be one of those empathic personalities that's like a vacuum cleaner going through, sucking up everybody else's energy and their junk. There's a little bit of cleaning that's going to help you feel like you've lost 10 pounds, maybe. Uh, At least that's my experience when I do it. And some shielding that I think is really important that can help you when you're dealing with tough conversations, maybe doctor's appointments that you necessarily are not so keen about going to. So I'm not going to say much more than that other than that you should definitely tune in, do the work of following this uh, exercise that Sharna is going to record for you coming up. But anything that you want to say about that exercise before we say goodbye for today's episode? Just that, yeah, we'll talk a little bit in the meditation about uh, what it is to build a shield, how to shield up to the world, how to make sure that your energy body is constantly cleansing and uh, processing. This is also really highly key for those of us who relate as empaths or introverts or highly sensitive people. We have so many words for this now, right? <laughs> we talk about it. Um, but if you notice that you are the kind of person where your energy tends to get drained in groups or in certain situations, learning what I call energy hygiene or how to manage manager energy is key and shielding is one of my favorite and most powerful ways of doing it. Okay. So just to recap our episode, we have talked about how to know when it's an unexpected spiritual waking, what the stages are, so you can kind of understand where you're at. And then one thing that we didn't talk a ton about, but we can touch on real quickly is how do you navigate this process? Like, do you have some tips for, you know, someone that's definitely going, I'm in this, I'm in stage three. Like what, what are your tips for navigating? Yes. That going back to that, like a young energy thing, right? Everybody wants the program. (laughs) What do we, what do we do? But it's one of the biggest questions I get asked, you know, is like, we explain the whole process and then it's like, okay, what do I do? And telling somebody not to do anything is not helpful. Although ultimately that's what we tend to come to um, is that, that S word, right? The surrender word. But I think some of my uh, biggest or most important tips is to surround yourself with 
people who have been through this process. I talk about awakenings a lot. And one of the biggest things I always want to make sure that I say is seek out somebody who can help you. You know, a lot of us feel like we have to navigate life by ourselves. I just read this great book called Lost Connections. And it's talking about actually like depression and anxiety in our current society and how this pull yourself up from your bootstraps mentality um, makes us all feel like we have to figure things out all on our own. And we tend to self-isolate. The awakening process on itself is already isolating. So you kind of don't have to worry about that. Most people tend to want to withdraw from their life when they're going through it. Finding at least one person who can help you is really, really, really key. Obviously, Hillary's a great resource. I'm a resource. Anybody inside of the field of holistic health, mental health, can likely help navigate you through this. You do also want to make sure that you're really careful with the individuals that you invite into your process. You know, I, in my earlier 20s, worked with a lot of different professionals and individuals in the holistic health and, and shamanic worlds. And one of the things that I that I learned is that, you know, a lot of folks out there are practicing right now kind of hanging a shingle based primarily on personal experience, but without a lot of actual context or knowledge or awareness. So as much as we talk about the yin energy and the feminine being important, right, of like experience, there's also something to be said for working with somebody with a certification, you know, and, and it's okay to ask people that you work with what their background and their certification is, how long that they've been practicing for, what experience they have with what it is that you're uniquely going through. And even if they have all of that in place, and they still don't feel like a good fit for you, it is okay to walk away even after taking up a a certain portion of their time, because it's really key to make sure that whoever you're working with as a spiritual teacher or a practitioner is not only knowledgeable and aware, but also the right fit for you. I, I would be remiss not to say that I think that piece is really important, even if it's just one person. Uh, you've heard Hillary and I talk a lot about, you know, the fact that we have other people that work on and with us and teams that, you know, we work with in terms of folks that deal with our physical, mental, emotional, energetic, spiritual health. And so I'm a real big advocate actually of assembling some kind of a team because it's good to have multiple resources depending on what you need. Uh, and then my, my final piece would be if community appeals to you, whatever way that looks, eventually most people going through this do find some t- kind of call to trying to connect to other like-minded individuals. Not everybody's a community person, and if you're not, that's okay too. But isolation, while it's a necessary part of the awakening process, can also actually make it that much harder. And so finding that balance between knowing when to reach out and when to be alone is really key. And then having patience with yourself, patience with and through this process and doing that exploration into all of those yin or feminine energy kinds of things, play, creativity, enjoyment, travel, experience, finding things that give you time in nature, um, moving with and being with your physical body. Uh, Hiking is one of my favorites, but, you know, finding some kind of a practice that brings you into the body and then, you know, meditation. I know Hillary and I are both big fans of that uh, because that's also another really key place where we can find those quiet moments to integrate. Yeah, I think those those tips are awesome and super important. Credentialing is a big deal, especially in a, an alternative or holistic world, like you said, where anybody can uh, hang a shingle and you are 
definitely certified out the wazoo. You can find her complete bio on our page uh, that hosts the show notes, which is ladypotions.com forward slash episode 55. If you want to learn more about where Sharna learned her training, but you can also work with her. You can check her out on her own website, which is seeksparkshine.com. She is actually coming to St. Pete next year. She's going to be teaching Reiki 1 and Reiki 2. So if this is something that appeals to you and you want to learn how to do on yourself or other people, but mainly you need to learn to do it on yourself first, she will be coming to my practice, Art of Acupuncture, in the summer of 2019 as well as the fall. So that is an opportunity to learn from her. And then she also has retreats that she does at different times of the year. You've got one coming up in Washington, right? The summer solstice retreat. I do. I do. I have one also in Sedona in spring, but that one's almost sold out. I've only got shared rooms for that one. And then I actually have a New Year's retreat in San Diego up on Palomar Mountain for just a couple of nights. It's got one spot available in it for a private room for anybody in the area that just wants to fly out to San Diego for a nice different way of celebrating New Year's. Yeah, the retreats are amazing because they are like such a great way if you're going through something like this to really kind of settle your soul and ground yourself and kind of get your bearings with like-minded people and a good facilitator or supporter that's leading that retreat so that you can come back into your life kind of refreshed and and have some connections to potentially help you through when you how to reintegrate this into your your life as the new improved version of yourself. Yeah, and I actually have an online class I teach on balance. I've talked a little bit about those masculine, feminine, yang and yin principles, and uh, I teach a divine balance class that's actually kicking off in the beginning of 2019. So for anybody that's like, okay, well, how do I get more in touch with my feminine? That's also another great resource, and the registration's up for that too, in case anybody's interested. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for bringing your expertise. I can't wait to see what meditation exercise unfolds coming up here for our listeners. And thank you to the listener for your time and as your most valuable asset. I hope that we have helped you to feel a little bit more clear and calm about what's going on in your fertility world today. And thank you, Hillary. I really appreciate it. And thank you for bringing this podcast to the world. It's so needed and so appreciate it. And thank you for having me on. Oh, you're most welcome, Sharna. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Fertile Minds Radio, hosted at www.ladyportions.com, where you'll find past episodes, show notes, and free meditations. If you've benefited from what you've heard, leave a comment or review so it makes it easier for others to find this valuable wisdom. Let's help elevate each other. Thanks for listening.